Our guest tonight is a two-sport athlete with eight Paralympic medals to her name, as comfortable on the snow as she is on the bike. She's attended eight different Paralympic Games, and after a short retirement, she's planning to make it back to her ninth. Our guest today is the extraordinary Allison Jones. Hello, Allison Jones, and welcome to Bobby and Jens. Hi, thank you for having me. Our pleasure, our pleasure. Well, um, we are having a little bit of internet difficulty, and we know how great the internet is over here in the U.S., so I figured that you're somewhere else. Where are you at the moment, and what's going on? Um, I am currently outside of Maniago, Italy. I'm on the U.S. Paris Cycling National Team. And we are at our first World Cup of the season for the 2023 year. How long have you been over there? And how was the jet lag actually? Because we both remember from our days as a cyclist, the jet lag sometimes takes a few days to get over. Yeah, so I got here, ma, what, Monday? Yeah, we left Sunday, got here Monday. Um, I managed to sleep on the long flight from Minneapolis to Paris. So that was good. I got some sleep there. And I think last night was the first night it all caught up and I slept from 8 p.m. until 7 p.m. Uh, 7 a.m. So I think I've gotten over the hump just in time for race day tomorrow. Oh, so the race is already tomorrow then? Yeah, um, part of our team started today. So we had our first round of time trials today. Um, the second round of time trialing is tomorrow. And then road race on Saturday and Sunday. Awesome, awesome. Well, you know, Allison, doing a little bit of research for this podcast, I realized that we have a few things in common. Both of us were born in Texas. We both moved to Colorado at a very young age. We both competed in Athens in 2004. But most important of all, we both love Legos. Yes, that's awesome. And if you can see, I'm building one. It's still a long way to go. This is going to be the collector's edition of the Millennium Falcon. But I have uh, so much other stuff to do that I have very little time to work on it. So for you, how many models have you put together? And do you keep them all somewhere stored? Or what do you do with them? Because I struggle. My wife so don't want me to put all my Lego Star Wars in the living room. I wonder why that is. Yeah. I have a lot. So again, Star Wars fan as well. So I actually have the Millennium Falcon getting ready to build. I have the Star Destroyer and I have the Death Star, the full big the big series ones and then i've got a lot of the little ones i like characters so i will buy those random ones i have sean connery and harrison ford from indiana jones because who else would want sean connery as a lego figurine absolutely right um but then like ecto one all of the space nasa ones so i have the saturn rocket the apollo lander um yeah and then lots yeah lots of star wars original series ones which one of those ones that you just described took you the longest to put together? And how long do you think you actually spent on that longest one? This Death Star was eight hours. And that was working on it for like one hour chunks over an entire week. Because it's Death Star under construction. So it's not just like a giant globe. It's like a trillion pieces of all the inside layers looking like it's an unfinished building. Yep, I know the one. But I haven't got it yet. But I'm still working on my <laughs> on my Millennium Falcon. 
That is so cool. You had yeah. a lot of these yeah. ones, right? And you, you keep them all somewhere safe at home? Right. Yeah, right now they're all, um, I would say majority are disassembled, unfortunately, because I just moved back to Colorado Springs. So the best way to pack them was to actually take them apart to a degree. And that's the best part. It's like Christmas all over again as I put them back together. And yes, I have a room dedicated for them this time. They're going to go and shelves and up and actually get displayed. Oh, man. I, I helped a good buddy of mine move his collection of pretty much everything that you just mentioned from one house to another. And we were packing it so carefully, but then we had to drive like two, three hours from his house back to Boulder where he was moving. And when we were taking him out, you just start finding all these little pieces around and you're just like, oh my gosh, what are we gonna do? <laughs> start all over, start all over. Yep. Well, before we like kind of tell your story, I'm interested now that we have you like the night before competition, what is the competition tomorrow? What are you preparing for? Um, so it's a individual time trial. It's 13.7 kilometers. And it, it kind of sticks its little nose into the base of the Dolomites, right? And then comes right back down and we go back downhill. It's a circuit, so it's not point to point. I don't I don't remember what the elevation is. It's not that steep. It's just gradual up, gradual down, and really fast fun. And it's through the narrow streets. So that to me is, from my alpine skiing background, to me that's just a blast to see how, how many people I can buzz off fences and make them almost need new underwear when I almost hit walls. But I, I avoid that part. But I try to see how close I can on pushing the line. I think I made my coach change his pants yesterday doing the left turn into cobblestones because he said he wouldn't go that fast thing. He has two legs and I have one. So I take that as a compliment and challenge accepted. That definitely is a compliment from what I can see. Um, so your it's your first World Cup, you said. Is that somehow also a qualifier for the Olympic Games uh, next year, or is that not part of the qualification system for the upcoming Olympics? This year, it is all about creating the team slots, right? Like, so we're doing the UCI points to build up how big of a team we can take to the Paralympics next year. And so it's definitely one of those where it does help with team selection, It's not fully defined yet, but we, it's more about like, can we, how many women can we qualify for next year's Paralympic Games? And that starts now, like the, the points are starting. So as much as you could be selfish to wait till later in the season to do well, it actually is really important right now so that we can build up enough team slots so that I have a better chance of making the Paralympic team. Um, talk about chances of making Paralympic teams. Um, I've counted that you've already gone to eight Paralympics. Is that true? And yes. maybe you took a break for a while and now you're heading for 2024? Yeah, I did eight Paralympic Games consecutively from 2002 through 2016 um, with eight Paralympic medals, um, two gold, three silver, three bronze. And yeah, then I decided to retire and actually create a savings account which is, has been very nice. And then I got bored while I was in Indianapolis because I don't know if you guys have been to any. It's very flat. 
and there's not much to do there. So I was installing machines for a job and I decided to bring my bike and I fell back in love with racing again. So I decided to throw my hat back in and see if I couldn't qualify for 2024. And how long ago did you make that decision? Uh, After the Tokyo Games. Because they gave me a two and a half years, basically, to get ready. And now you do feel ready. The the numbers add up. The speed looks okay. You feel like you're there where you want to be because it's uh, tomorrow. And then, I guess, first reality check, first proper check on your form. And then you can maybe adjust some on your form if you want to. But you feel good where you want it to be? Absolutely. I feel great on comparing numbers because I am a nerd. Um, And I saved data and I compared numbers to 2017 and I'm spot on to where I was before I took a four-year hiatus. And so, and everything is aligning really well. I'm a really good coach. She got me peaked and tapered down right on time. So key is the next three weekends of really good performances. And I think it's, I think we're there. So it's really exciting to see. Well, as a coach, who is your coach? And you said he's with you right now, right? Uh, he's working with me. He's like here in Italy, but I work with Ben Sharp, um, who mm-hmm. you know, has coached the women's T-Pursue. He's coach. He's Jennifer Valente's coach. He's He's got his hand in helping a lot of great athletes get so worried where they are now. And I've been working. I worked with him before I took my retirement. He was the first person I called when I said, I think I'm all going to do this. And he gave me an opportunity to fail and I didn't. So that was really nice. That was a, a kind gesture. Of, Let's see if you're really committed. And, you know, I did it what I needed to do. And so they just picked me right back up where, I, where we kind of left off. And it's been a, a great journey getting back to where we are now. What was that test he gave you that you passed? Uh, 60 hours and 60 days. And this was end of, so August, September, October of 2021. And I ride with one leg and 60 hours is a bit of time. Also, I work a full-time job, 40 hours a day or a week working full-time jobs. So really crushing. And I trying to push myself as a non-committed athlete at that point in time. Like I went to the gym a couple times a week. I did random things a couple times a week. I wasn't my normal, you know, fit as a fiddle training athlete like I was in 2016, 2017. So he gave me the opportunity, like, can I actually write 60 hours and 60 days? And I actually did it in 50 days to be a pain in the ass like I am. Uh, so I think you do commute to work on bike, right? Is that going to help? How long I, is that ride? Uh, when I was in Oregon, that was an hour and 15 minutes to work. So I do that a couple... Well, it was also Oregon, so when it wasn't raining, um, cats and dogs, I was I was definitely riding to work. But then I I was able to actually get in a lot of longer weekends and maximize those hours. But it was I think it was a fair test to see if I was really committed. And plus, there was no no actual written schedule. It was just do it on your own. So then I think as an athlete, that can be the more challenging part. You like you don't have a schedule to say you need to go do these hours or these rides these days, especially coming back into it. And so to me, that was a, a fair a fair test to see if I was actually willing to be self-motivated to go out and get on the bike and remember what it felt like to ride the bike after okay. work, after, you know, at lunch and stuff like that. So you, you mentioned Indianapolis and Oregon. Yes. And where is your home base now? And yes, we need to stop dancing around the tulips here. 
what is your full-time job? Uh, I I now live in Colorado. I'm back in Colorado Springs. Um, that was one of Ben's first questions when we're getting back to Colorado so I can get back to altitude. I grew up there. I left for the whole savings account filler upper job. And um, Indianapolis was part of the work. And then back to Colorado Springs. And I came back to Colorado Springs because now I'm a design engineer for SRAM working on a rear suspension. Um, I always wanted to ask, what's the next big thing SRAM is going to get out? Like a wireless braking system where then everything is just on the brake? Or what's the next hot thing getting out there? Can you tell us uh, some secrets? I mean And they tell you some secrets. I think I like my job, so I'm going to tell you some secrets that aren't secret. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we got transmission, which is fantastic. I managed to set up an entire mountain bike ride frame in two minutes. So other than sizing the chain that I thought was pretty fantastic and me still just learning mountain bikes, because no, I'm not a mountain bike rider designing mountain bike equipment. I thought that was pretty cool that it's pretty intuitive and pretty easy for someone who's slightly mechanically inclined to put together an uh, entire drivetrain. So I think that's the, the pretty rad thing that Stern was able to come out. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more integration, a lot more systems aligning, a lot more systems being compatible. And I looked at the adaptive side and I think where Stern's continuing to push the edge on what adaptive riders can do was lack of functional appendages. Well, you know, now that we're talking dream things, you said wireless brakes, Yenzi. I've always <laughs> been interested in just telepathy shifting. Like, okay, I'm in my 12. I want to shift up. I want to shift down. Just think it and it shifts. Could you put that in the SRAM pipeline? I totally. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you. I think my, my teammate does use her head literally to do her shifting she she thinks i need a shift and she literally nods one direction and it shifts so you know, that's the power of sram and its capabilities is it's a pretty cool system and flexible system but i'd say that's the closest we're going to get to using your head brain power but i will definitely put it to my teammates back in colorado springs that we need you know flight attendant needs to go to to literally the next level of out there thinking um, and just get rid of that internal, you know, computer system. Well, we get, we can get into Ghostbusters there and our telepathic kinetic goo, the slight, you know, fluid. Instead of using hydraulic fluid, we'll put the goo in everything so that our emotions can do all the thinking for us. So is it like you show up there Monday morning and go, hey, how can we conquer the world and change everything? Or you also <laughs> have sometimes days where you go, now nah, I guess we just got to make this a little bit better or quicker or is everything just revolutionary well, at your job i mean everything's great at three i mean i did to ride my bike to work i think i sent all of my coworkers back in portland the day i got to go ride my bike for my job and yes i got a brand new bike at my job which is fantastic i think the other thing is like totally bashing other companies is like posted through our team chats it's not just like hey hey like look at this it's like SRAM's amazing, right? We're the best company in the world for rear suspension right now. And Pink Bike says so, right? Pink Bike rules the cycling community. And uh, they said we were the best rear suspension. And then the best part is then hearing like what other companies like Fox 
and reading their reviews about their Cool X2 stuff and everything like that and how much everybody hates it. So it is a really good feel-good company that when we say we are going to do really good things with the world, we're doing it as we speak right now. So what was your education uh, like in, in college to qualify for a job like this? Because it it's pretty amazing. A lot of times you hear people go to college, they get a degree, and then they never use that degree. But you got a degree in engineering. Is that right? Yeah. So Nate was part of being the assay. Like I was planning forward for the next next step, next step, next step. I also got a, a scholarship. So I was able to do school without worrying about paying bills to a degree, at least those bills. And to me, I, mean, I remember walking in my freshman year and you know, the professor wants to know, what are you going to, what are your aspirations with your degree? What are you going to do with this? Is like, this is plan B. This was 100% plan B. I plan on going back to skiing and cycling after this. And you could just see his jaw drop because everybody else was like, oh, I'm going to go work for NASA. I'm going to go build cars. I'm going to go do this. And it's like, I don't know. I'm going to do anything with this right now. And I think it was kind of a very different path than what most of my um, peers were doing. Um, I was still competing full time while I was there, too. That was the big kickers. I did five years, which was the 04 games, the 06 games. Um, and then three world championships while we're there between the two sports. So it, I think it, I made a point that this was plan B as I was full-time competing while going to school. Um, just to give our um, listeners like a little bit more of a clear orientation, all the games you mentioned, that is a mix between summer games and winter games, correct? You did participate more or less every two years in some Paralympic games. Is that That's correct? Yeah, it's absolutely correct. So it was every every two years was a games, and then usually on those every other years was a world championships. So it was that every I'd say every six months I was bouncing from skis to bike, back to skiing, back to bike, back to skis, back to bike. I took October off. That was my only concession. I, I was going to say there's not much of a down period there, and obviously you're very good with budgeting your. Your, your time. But with all this traveling, I mean, all I can think of, because I used to travel a lot as well, and I got caught out one time, you must have had to had a lot of pages added to your passport during this period. Yeah. I think going through the different travel at that age was pretty phenomenal. And being able to see what I was seeing and being able to do what I was doing was just, and it was Skiing is just as is busier than the cycling season because you only get three months to have the entire ski season. So basically, from end of December through mid March, you're you're just travel nonstop. And when did it cross your mind first to actually go from skiing? That's where you started, right? Go from skiing. Hey, I can also ride yep. my bikes in the summer games. Who got you to that idea, and who helped you? How did that transition happen? Yeah, so I got super lucky living in Colorado Springs. They have a velodrome. Um, it's where the 94 games, that's where they train. That was their high-altitude training facility for the 94 games in Atlanta. And they held the 1998 Paracycling World Championships in Colorado Springs. And so I thought I was going to a local cycling race. because We went to it all the time. You could see the giant lights, and they, they were, like, really giant, and they were way oversized. So you could see them from 10 miles away. You knew there was an event going on. And so I thought we were just going to one of those weekly events where you see 
um, people crashing. And that's what I went to watch people crash and come up with, you know, road burn. It's concrete velodrome from tip to tail. And they survived and who got up and how much skin suit was left. Um, I thought that was what I was going to. Instead, I walked in and I saw a guy literally with no hands and no feet doing a standing start. And I just looked at my mom and I said, I'm doing this. Like, this is this is what I'm going to do. And we flagged down the first American coach we could find and asked, how do I sign up? And literally, so I being spring of the next year, I learned how to ride a track bike before I learned how to ride like a proper road bike. Like I had kids bikes, like I knew how to ride your Huffy from Target, but I had no idea what a road bike was. I didn't know all the gear ratio. I didn't know any of that. Like it was just a bike from Target I rode. And then next thing you know, I'm on a fixed gear, um, single skinny tired thing, no brakes, learning how to race on that bike down a concrete velodrome. How old were you then? I didn't have my driver's license yet, so I think I was 14. So yeah, and then I went from there. And then, then yeah, I was one of those people with road rash for that the tent at some point with lack of skin suit. That is amazing. But that's the way that here in America, we get exposed to cycling. It's seeing an event like that that just blows us away. For me, it was, you know, the course classic when I was roughly 14 years old, 13, 14 years old when I started paying attention to it. And um, yeah, you just you just know immediately, like, boom. So we got the the genesis of your cycling story. How and where did you first start skiing? Um, that was even younger. So we're going to go back to when I was five. And it was the family sport. And it, I had a younger sister. And it was a single mom situation where she had to wrangle two kids. And my first memory of skiing was mom had one pair of skis, me and my sister. And she put the skis on my sister, like carry her 15 feet up the hill, point both skis downhill and then let go. And then for me with one leg, she literally just did the same thing, except for I used one ski. And she put the one ski on, carrying me 15 feet up the hill, point the ski down the hill and let go. And so I learned how to ski basically by following what everybody else was doing. And then I got, I did another fe- super fortunate, um, went through a whole program with a national sports center for the disabled in Winter Park where they, that's what they do is teach kids how to ski. But really, like the first time I remember that freedom of skiing was what my mom did, what she basically did with my sisters, just point me down the hill and let go. And that freedom, the exhilaration of, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Just, I remember that clear as day. Um, And then at some point I got too good for the learn to ski program that they kicked me over to the racing program. And then it just went from there. I was doing downhills when I was eight years old and Coaches didn't have to worry because I was so light and so little, I couldn't gain enough speed to worry about any course feature. They just totally get from the start to the finish, you'll be fine. And, you know, 10 years, eight years later, I was at my first Paralympic Games. Wow. So you started in Winter Park, Colorado. Yes. So, I mean, yep. beautiful area. No wonder why you like altitude. That's uh, some pretty good meters up there we used to have our winter training camp up there in winter park uh granby tabernash area yeah when we were in the early early 90s trying to do those winter winter camps where we would 
either cross country ski all day, snowshoe all day, downhill okay. ski. It was a blast, but it was like seven to eight hours a day of, yeah. of movement at that altitude. So good on you for, for having those sort of lungs. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess for our listeners, we should kind of tell your story. You know, you were born with a birth defect, which um, the proximal femoral focal deficiency or the PFFD. Explain to us and our listeners exactly what that condition is. Yes, for sure. Basically, I was born with this disability. The proximal, which is where your hip attaches to your femur, so that joint, the ball and socket joint, never formed properly on the femur. And I was just born with a very, very short femur. I had technically 10 feet or 10 toes, but without that hip structure, the foot never really grows well. So when I was really, really young, nine months old, they amputated what I had of a foot and they fused the bones together in my hip so that the tibia and the knee joint come together. And then that was the only surgery I knew. I got my first leg when I was 11 months old and I started walking like any other kid. My mom did a really good job of treating me just like my younger sister and knowing no difference. Um, the only time she did that, I usually called her out on it. And my sister got rollerblades one year for Christmas and I did it and I asked her why. Why didn't I get, well, I'm the older sister. Why is my younger sister getting rollerblades and I'm not? I don't understand this. And my mom basically said like, I, she didn't want me to be disappointed when I couldn't do it. So me being a bigger sister, I stole my little sister's rollerblades and started learning how to rollerblade up and down the street. I got rollerblades the next day. So I that's how I, you know, I chose to go through life is that if I wanted to do something, I was going to figure out how to do it. And like learning to ride a bike involved duct tape because I had to duct tape my foot to the pedal because it just wander off on its own otherwise. And to me, it's just, yeah, it's how you did it. And I was super competitive and super wanting to be outside. I had a, a neighborhood full of boys my age and being the only two girls on the street, like neither had to step up or sit down. And I think nine times out of 10, we were stepping up right with the boys and trying to climb the tree or play football on the street or play basketball. We do little mini tournaments and stuff like that. Like I got super fortunate with my neighborhood and the, my friends that they treated me like I didn't have one leg and that I was just a little bit slower. Just, you know, I needed a, a little adjustment in the rules so that I could full on participate with everyone and be right there with the whole group. And we'll be right back after this short break. Once you decided you would do a national team sport out of your love for skiing, tell me um, us and our listeners a little bit about the process you go through to find your category and how many categories are, are out there to give us like a little overview of how the system works. Yeah, and skiing and cycling run very similar that you go through a medical classification and it's a way to make it a fair system so all athletes can compete at the same or appropriate um, level playing fields. Skiing is one where we all have, I think the best way to describe it, we all compete together with a factor system. Um, but that's the easiest parallelism to that is golf. You know, golf handicap system. 
the the more strokes it takes you to get, the more you get to take off your your score, right? And the, if you're a pro player, you're not taking, you're getting full face value of what what your score is. And so in, in sports, when they do that type of factorization, is if you have a very severe disability, you'll get more time taken off. If you have a less disability, say you're missing just your hand, which does affect your balance, but in that downhill race, it doesn't really affect how you ski, then you don't get any time taken off. And they basically, that way the whole field can compete against each other for the same medals, and it's a fair competition. And it wouldn't be like me and you, Yen, who's going out and doing a hill sprint. I would get half the hill or something like that to start in front. Or, I mean, if you play, done the handicap race on the velodrome, you all start staggered around it. Whoever crosses the finish line first, but I only have to do one lap, you have to do two sort of situation. And so they do that with time, and they'll make sure that those times are equal or fair. You can't say equal, that they're fair based on your performance. And cycling similar, we don't usually compete against each other head to head. The whole field is divided into different categories based on the disability so that you're racing against um, like disabilities. And if I've got one leg, if someone's got severe cerebral palsy and basically their legs function the same equivalence as my one leg, they will race against each other. But if you're missing one hand, I'm not going to race against you. You're going to race against other folks with missing one hand or equivalence. And so it becomes this fair system. So we're racing against our peers. Okay. With as many Paralympics that you've been to uh, all over the planet, uh, you went to so far eight of them and you've meddled in four of them. Which is your favorite or best memory? And what was the most challenging moment of those eight Olympics? Um, I mean, best as a whole games put together was London by far. They knew how to take care of everyone there. They put on a great game. They were organized as the Brits could be and things were pretty much flawless. And the reason why I can say this was our, you know, follow vehicles and time trials. Your coach sits in that car for hours, right? And they're constantly picking up the next athlete. We have a circuit. So there are coaches literally spending two, three hours in the car just following athletes. I saw a volunteer getting them water. And it wasn't our team. There wasn't time for him to run back to the pits to get more water. Literally a volunteer taking care of all the drivers that were driving around Brands Hatch for all day long. And to me, that was like the commitment of putting on a fantastic games. Um, you know, I also won gold and two bronze. That was also pretty phenomenal, um, just to top it. Um, the I'll have to do the second best was Torino, gold medal again. But it was one of those that had been in the moment. I don't remember the race. I remember starting and I remember finishing. And I literally, as soon as I finished, I knew I did, I did really well. It was a fast race. I went to my coach and I said, if they disqualify me for missing a gate, I can't protest it because I honestly don't know if I made the gate. I cannot remember anything but like the first four gates and the last four gates. That's it. And he's like, I think you did okay. I, I, I think you did okay. And sure enough, like I went gold and my teammate went bronze. And so it was one of those phenomenal races. Um, as a single moment in the Olympic Games. I would say the worst moment was probably Vancouver. That Those games were just a 
pile of flaming poo for me, to be honest. Like, if it could go wrong, it went wrong. Um, the weather didn't help. Usually the women go first, the men go second. And so I, how I memorized the courses wasn't adequate enough to memorize the courses waiting four and a half hours. And so by the time I got into some of those races, it was like, I actually don't remember where I was supposed to go now. And it was just one of those moments of it had, the system had bucked me so much. I was just completely lost in those games. And, um, yeah, I said, I've done different things. Sure. But I just write that one off and moved on and, you know, had some very great successes and future games and future events after that one. So we're just going to scrap that one. So um, when you change within six months from skiing to um, summer games or summer sports, how do you train for that? I mean, as far as I have seen skiing, that's sometimes one minute 30, one minute, two minutes 30 effort. And the road race is, is yeah. longer, an hour or two or three. Uh, how do you change uh, training or how could you use one training to prepare for the other sports? Yeah, and that's, it actually, it, it's the latter, right? Like I use skiing, I come out of the season super strong, right? Men and a half, all out effort. I could climb any minute and a half hill to perfection. And I could probably repeat it with enough time in between. And so, yeah, then it's just worry working on that aerobic base. And I didn't have to focus on the straight side of it because I came out super strong. And it was also then leaning up, right? Steam's a gravity sport. So I'd have to go from heavy body to light body. And so that was just the, I had a lot of fuel to burn. And I just start those base miles just later in the season than one would hope for. Um, and then at the end of the cycling season, going into the ski season, I had endurance like no one's business. I could go to the gym for four hours and then I could go ski for four hours because I was just this constant, you know, machine. I, I My heart was ready to go in my lungs. I wasn't doing anything taxing to the same degree as like a road race is. And so I literally could train the eight hours it took for me to get back into ski shape. By the end of the ski season, I, I can go maybe two hours. I was just straight up trying to do anaerobic stuff all the time. And I think it complemented itself really well for a long time. Um, also, I would say, like, process at the beginning of my career, both sports were still developing. Like, Athens, they only had two events for women. It was only the kilo on the track and then the time trial on the road. We didn't have a road race. We didn't have the pursuit. And now at, like, World Championships, we have a lot more events in both of them. So even that sport was still young. And skiing, we had just the basic you know, four events, but it was a very, I'd say much more less developed field. So the competition isn't nearly what it is today. And so by the latter half of my career, it was a struggle to get back up to top form because it was a lot more developed. And I was actually skipping skis and it's like year after the games, I probably did completely other sport. Definitely not skiing. I took a year off and I focused just on the bike because I knew it would take me much longer to get up to performance level that I was going to need to be at in order to compete at the international level. And so I think mean, right now, if I were to try to do two sports again, I think it'd be very, very difficult. It's in which is fantastic to hear for Paralympic sports because it's only getting bigger and better and more, you know, more developed and more sports, more athletes. Um, And so, but yeah, at some point it, my body, and also I'm almost 40, so my body doesn't like to do that anymore. Not at all. 
Well, you told us about one of your gold medals and how I take that was that you were in what we call the zone. Um, yeah. You won your second gold medal and became the only the second American woman to win gold medals in both the Summer Olympics and the Winter Olympic Paralympics um, in 2012. So was there a same kind of in the zone moment in 2012 at the London Games? Um, not not as much on um, when it's hard. I feel like it'd be harder to be in the full zone for 20 plus minutes, but it was definitely that course suited me from an alpine skiing. It was a very, Brands Hatch is an F1 course. So it's not a straight out and back. It's not 90 degree corners. It's knowing how to read the line and knowing how to put yourself in the right position to capitalize on cornering and being fearless into a 90 degree quarter, I think also helped. Um, and so I think Brands Hatch was just 100% for me to dominate it based on a skiing perspective and knowing the fastest line coming off hills, going through quarters and being able to then just execute at the highest power I possibly could. And to me, it, it did make it more surreal when I found out my time because I didn't think I'd done anything spectacular. I knew I did a good ride, but when we looked at like splits and stuff, all the time I was making up was that, that line choice and that cornering. And it was like, okay, that felt pretty freaking amazing. And and part of the factoring system, you don't know your time until afterwards. Like you can't run to a stopwatch that goes 90% slower. Like you can't, like you can only run raw time. So you don't know exactly how you finish until like minutes later. So you can hear their times. You are know, like, I don't know if that was enough. Like pins and needles waiting to hear results. And then finally you hear results. And I think that's when it all set in. And then in 2012, I have a great photo of me sitting and staring at my medal. And that is literally, I was like half an hour after the award ceremony. That is actually when it sunk in. Like, holy moly, I just did this. Like, it. this is real. This is this gold thing in my hand is, is really real, real thing. And it was a pretty, like, like, chilling and surreal moment of just sitting on that bench inside of the team pits. Like, holy, that's awesome. So, yeah, a little different, but definitely that same kind of thrilling moment. So now you're already a two-sports athlete. Ever thought about picking up a third one, like rowing or kayaking or? I, during my retirement, I picked up CrossFit. And mm -hmm. it's actually seventh in the U.S. first year and 20th in the U.S. the second year competing in CrossFit. Um, I tried running. I, Allison doesn't run. I, I don't run. I like rowing. I am very interested in rock climbing, and that's now a Paralympic sport. So I told Ben after Paris I might pick up that for a spot of time, but who knows? Wow. <laughs> that would be amazing. Well, you have eight of them. Where do you keep your Olympic or your Paralympic medals? Um, they're now in a cupboard. They used to be behind the books. Um, cause I'm not, I'm not a boastful person when it comes to actually displaying my, my precious treasures. Um, so they stay in their little boxes and give you nifty little boxes to store them in. And I put those behind the bookshelf so they're not out in front for everybody just grab and mangle. But it's like the great little secret. Can I show you something to like my good friends and they see me 
digging, rooting around behind the bookshelf. Like I'm going to pull out something not, I don't know. I, I feel like it's an on shock moment. Um, the, the 10 world championship medals are on the wall, but they're usually hidden behind the door. So when you open the door, it's not the first thing you see. It, it's like you have to look for them. Um, so now you are part of the uh, parasports uh, or paracycling family national team. Um, the way we got in contact was uh, via an old friend of mine, um, Anthony Zahn. Do you have any funny stories you want to share with us, with Anthony or about Anthony? I have a lot of funny stories Go. with Anthony, a lot of good stories. That Anthony, Anthony and I, we went to Beijing and London together. He, we actually met way long before that when he was still, like his neurological disability was still in its emphasis. And so we, oh gosh, I had to say like one, do you know how like old school milk cartons open where you gotta like pull the flat back and then kind of do the little triangle push out things? Do you know how many people it takes to open that up when you don't have thumbs? Like, I was the third person to touch one of those milk cartons because no one had thumbs in that group. And Anthony's thumbs don't, didn't work well. Like, his fingers, digits, he had great grip strength, but individual tech stuff. And it was hilarious of watching a bunch of people with no thumbs try to open a milk carton. And Anthony had started it. He thought he could get it. He thought he'd knuckle it or do something. Um, Anthony is such a great guy. Um, I think we're out on the course at the same time, too. So it was pretty, pretty fantastic day for the team that day. Um, he, I, I told him I'd buy him an 18-year-old. I forgot to say scotch at the end of that. Um, <laughs> That's <a> good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he had a, he had a very good taste for scotch, and he I told him I'd take him to the bar and get him an eight year old, and I totally forgot scotch. Yeah. Oh boy. Oh. oh, he's just a great guy. We had many good stories, and we talk about many good things, and you know, he always always positive, always wanting to get out there and do something silly or stupid. Well, <clears throat> another really cool thing that I read that you got to do was that you were the flag bearer for the United States in the opening ceremonies in Rio. What was that like? It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And I was so honored by Team USA for nominating me. I had a spitball little representative of a teammate named Meg Fisher um, go in and basically convince the rest of our country that I should carry that flag. And I got, you know, she did her job well, and I really appreciate that. And then, you know, walking into the stadium, I, I've walked in a couple times with the other games, but actually walking in in front of Team USA and actually seeing everything, holding the flag, knowing that there's only a handful of people that get to do this, and, you know, you only get two people every game, and there's only so many games that have happened, and that I got to put my name amongst those other greats. It, is just, it was just a super honor. On um, very, again, another surreal moment and seeing if you walk into, you're walking into a stadium of like 80,000 people. They're there for you and to commit, you know, to congratulate you on making it to the games. And I get to stand 15 feet in front of everybody and really take that in for the first time by myself. It was absolutely an, an amazing moment in time. That was also a good bragging rights photo, actually. I'm going to do a side story. 
I was sitting next to this guy and he worked for USA Hockey. So not para hockey, like USA Hockey. And he, I, we had a mutual friend. I said, oh, I know this guy. Like, he's super nice. He's super great. And this guy proceeded to pull out these photos of things they had done together. And one of them was um, the World Series for the Cubs. But he kept pulling out, like, we're having drinks. And I just made this one, like, hey, do you know this guy? Yeah, yeah, I know this guy. That's all I wanted, right? I, w- I didn't want to show how fantastic his life story was. But he kept showing me these photos of the things they'd done together at these really cool places. And so I finally busted out the photo of me carrying the flag into Rio. And I said, yeah, have you been able to do this one? He didn't talk to me again the rest of the night. I was really excited about that. But that was like, that was my one moment of one-upsmanship is like, you'll never be able to carry the flag into an Olympic stadium, you bastard. You absolutely, that was a 360 uh, full facial dunk on pretty much anything so that must have been amazing it felt great at the moment yes so i guess Allison, you got a few more races coming your way in the next days uh, we took up a lot of your time we are so grateful and thank you that you were our guest today and it was a good way to finish or like being talking about you being the flag bearer so I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you for being our guest. And it was a fantastic talk we had. And I hopefully we can bring you back. I would be thrilled to come back. This has been a fantastic way to spend my evenings and getting ready for tomorrow's races. Got me all ready and amped up and, you know, meeting you guys. I've definitely watched you guys race your bikes. So it's, it's great to be able to have that commentary and that connection, especially Texas and Colorado. Who knew? You know, the roots go so far back in Athens and sharing those moments. Um, so I I greatly appreciate it. And I look forward to the next adventure and the next time we get to catch up. Maybe it'll be in Paris. Well, that's all our time for this week. Huge thanks to Alison for being our guest. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Value News production. The producer was Mark Payne and this episode was edited by Tim Mosa. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us. We spoke about some of our dream tech on the bike. What invention would you like to see make its way onto your bike? Let us know at Bobby and Jens. Mm-hmm.